Hello and welcome. I am your host, Michael Sherlock. Shocking, isn't it? I develop leaders and sales professionals all across the globe. I help them to tap into and achieve their true potential every day. I'm a business writer, speaker, and now host for this podcast, Shock Your Potential. Come on and join me. Let's learn and laugh together. Welcome again to another episode of Shock Your Potential, the business podcast that focuses on excellence in leadership, sales, and the customer experience. But from time to time, I like to take us on a slightly different path, as you all know. And today, my guest is going to be someone you remember. And you're going to be remembering her for quite a while, not just for the depth of her story and the strength of her resilience, but the message that I hope she leaves you with that I know that her message has left me with, and that is about understanding yourself, forgiveness, and using the things in your life that have been traumatic, hurtful, or harmful to actually help propel yourself farther. And that's not an easy feat. So let me give a little uh, bit of a, I guess, an overview to a little bit of a warning that this is, we're going to talk about some subject matter today that is not necessarily for all ears. So if you have little ones listening in, you might not want this to be the one you listen to in the car with them. And it's because we're going to talk about very, very serious issues that have lifelong repercussions and a very adult context. But I think In fact, I know you'll agree once we're done that this story will be something that changes your life. So I want to introduce you to a lovely woman, lovely in terms of, uh, you know, just her vision and and, uh, her presence, but also the strength of her character. Her name is Madeline Black, and she joins me from all the way across the pond in in a five-hour time difference. But uh, Madeline, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Your story, and I haven't given it any background yet to anybody except for if they've read the show notes, but your story is something that um, affects a lot of people, but most people have never talked about what has happened to them if they've had this experience. So, you know, would you just start by sharing a little of your story and the trauma that you experienced as a child? Sure. So my story starts in the late 1970s, and I was gang raped by two American teenagers when I was just 13 years old. Um, It's something that happened to me very, very easily, and it left a huge impact on my life. It affected me in many ways, many fears, phobias, negative thoughts, bad patterns, bad behaviors, just affected me for years. You were very, very young. And and not that at any age doesn't make a difference because it doesn't matter if you are the victim of rape, what age you are. But at that young age to have that severe of an assault, you know, you talked about it led to a lot of different things, but, you know, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, what what repercussions did that have in your life being affected so violently so young? Well, I couldn't speak about it for many years. It took me at least three years before I could actually tell my parents, but then I couldn't actually use my voice. I had to write a note and leave it on my pillow. But I believe what we don't speak about, it leaks out of us. So I became, um, I would do anything to numb out. So I used drink, I used drugs, I became anorexic, I attempted suicide, I had eight weeks in a psychiatric children's hospital, became very promiscuous, which is one of the many side effects that a rape victim can feel. 
I just had such feelings of low self-worth. I thought I was contaminated, dirty, worthless, and I was so ashamed. It was the shame that was crippling me. I thought that if anybody found out about what had happened to me, they would think the same ways that I thought about myself, and I would do my best not to let anybody find out. And that is so compelling. I, I was telling you before we started taping this morning that Oftentimes, I don't do a great deal of research on the people that I'm interviewing until the day of because I want there to be kind of some freshness or some new things that I learned. And I watched your YouTube video, and and we'll give the links to your website and and uh, the link to your YouTube video as well as you can uh, find that on your website. But you know, as I watched your story and I listened to your story, and I say I watched because I watched the video, but I watched you and I listened to you, and it the I could almost feel that sense, you know, and I know you've come to terms with it now differently in life, but that sense of you looking back on your childhood and seeing how you almost wanted to force the world to look at you the way you were seeing yourself as you had blame, you know, that as you say, you know, it leaked out of you and you hid from it. But, you know, is there some sense of, you know, you, you know, of, gosh, you know, if, if this happened and it was my fault, I'm just going to prove that it's, this is, you know, all that I am. Yes, it's very interesting because I, when I look back now, I can see that I was very rebellious. And I think inside my head, I was screaming out loud what had happened, but I couldn't find the words. So I was hoping, I guess, maybe subconsciously that my awful behavior would make them realize something must be up with her. And it was interesting when I came to write my memoir that I asked my hospital notes. I really wanted to see if they had any idea what had happened to me because I think I went from a normal kind of geeky, shy 13-year-old to one overnight who couldn't speak or eat and was traumatized. But in my notes, there was no suggestion at all of any trauma. And I just think they, they never asked me the right questions. Maybe if they had, I could have found my voice. I don't know. So in those eight weeks, they never asked you or never tried to find out what was the root cause of this radical no. change in behavior? We had had some contact with them prior when I was about 11 because my mum had a period of time when she was bedridden, so a couple of years. And when I was about 11, I developed epilepsy and they put it down to the fact that I was very concerned that my mum might die. And so we had the same psychologist from when I was 11. So when I look back now, he just picked up where he left off. He just thought it was the same family dynamics going on and I was still concerned and, you know, just, I think, lazy medicine, to be honest. <laughs> I, God, it just makes me, and probably you too, sick to your stomach to think that yeah. such things could be overlooked. And yet at the same time, I mean, if you look at us, you know, where we are right now with the Me Too movement and finally having dialogues, you know, openly about how many times women and men have been yeah. uh, victims of sexual assault or sexual harassment or rape, all these horrific abuse, all these uh, horrific things, but how many times they're overlooked because like you said, maybe lazy medicine, maybe because people don't want to see it, maybe it's too hard to deal with. You know, how do we miss these things, especially in our children? We need to really, I think if something doesn't feel right, you just need to ask the question. Right. doesn't matter if you're wrong. What's the worst they can say? No, that's not right. So ask the questions, never have doubt, or I'd hate to live with regret that I should have asked somebody a question when my gut was telling me something. So I would always ask. Yeah. As you're saying this, I contemplated whether or not I was going to share this little, very minor story, but it was significant to me considering the magnitude of, of your um, experience. Okay, but, but but it's not really about comparison. <laughs> ab absolutely. And, you know, and I think about it often because when I was in college, I had a um, 
he was the friend of a, he was the roommate of a friend of mine. And, you know, we were in a dorm and he had borrowed something and he came to bring it back. And he, it was a blender. He had had a party and he was making margaritas or something. And it was late in the evening and I let him into my room because he was bringing it back and he ended up attacking me. Now he was very drunk, so he couldn't, he did not, um, he, I was not raped, thankfully, but he bit me. I had bruises on my, I had teeth marks on my breast. I had uh, bruises on my arms and I got away from him. And the, um, when my roommate came home from work, she found me in the bathroom. I was just hiding there. And um, so we called the campus security, you know, security guard came and talked to me and he said, next morning, I'll go with you and we'll go talk to the head of campus security. And we went together and the head of security asked me the first thing he said, what were you wearing? And I said, well, I was in my pajamas. He goes, well, what time was it? And I, I said, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock. He goes, so you invited a man into your room at 11 o'clock at night while you're wearing your pajamas. Where were you sitting? I said, I, on my bed, you know, it's a dorm room. And through a series of questions, he said, well, we can, we can report this, but we have to report it to the police and it could ruin his life. Oh dear. <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying to contain myself and not swear on your podcast. Oh my God, it makes me so angry. So much victim blaming and rape culture still goes on today. It hasn't changed much at all. No. And you know, uh, and that was 28, nine years ago. That was almost 30 years ago. And, and of course, I didn't report him. And what makes me sick today is that about a year later, I heard that he raped a girl. Okay, but if if a criminal goes out and commits another crime, you are not responsible if you didn't report it. I know, but I felt that way for a long time. Yes, I know. And people have tried to make me feel guilty about that, but I can't take that on. If right. somebody breaks into your car, then they go and break into someone else's car. That's not your fault. Why is it different with rape and sexual assault? Right, exactly. Very true. Yep. Well, and one of the yep. things in your video as you're talking that really stuck with me is, you know, you're talking about, you know, I first thought that I needed to see them punished and I needed to look them in the eye and I needed to do all these things to find my my sense of forgiveness, but you found it anyway and you found it without that. And I think that's really empowering. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, how did you reach that point where you said, okay, mm-hmm. it's not about me seeing them seek justice, but it's about me. And one of the things you said that I wrote down, I wrote down a couple of your quotes. You said, forgiveness mm-hmm. is an act of self-love. How did you, yeah. how did you reach that point? Well, I would say that I am an accidental forgiver. (laughs) I never really intended to forgive them. You know, I was so full of hate, rage and anger. I was sarcastic, hostile. I was horrible. And I really wanted somebody to kidnap these two young men, take them to an empty flat, uh, beat them up, tie them up, rape and torture them for four or five hours on end, just like they had done to me. Yes. But when my eldest daughter turned 13, it triggered so many memories in me, so many flashbacks and nightmares that I eventually went back to counselling to start with to make them go away. And I soon realised I couldn't make the memories go away. They they came back in order for me to process them once and for all. So near to the end of the three years of therapy, my therapist suggested to me, you know, maybe these two young men weren't born rapists. And at first I was outraged. I thought, how dare he say that to me? I was so shocked. You know, it was awful. But he planted a seed in my mind and it started to grow. And I really wanted to try to understand how 
could these two young men make that choice that night to be so violent towards another human being? Because I do believe we are all born a blank sheet. We all come in the same way. And I wanted to know what had conditioned them so much in their life to make them behave so violently. What had they seen, heard, experienced themselves? And once I really started to take that on board, you know, somehow I felt compassion in my heart towards them. And I struggled for years to have the idea of having children. Luckily, I went on to have three of my own. And I thought also, what kind of mother would I be if I carried all this hate and anger and revenge? The rapist wouldn't know. It's going to harm my kids, my husband, my friends. And I, I saw I had a choice. I could let it all go and choose to forgive them, or I could stay caught in my anger and, and victimhood. And it's much easier from where I'm sitting right now, rather than being so angry and full of hate. Well, and I I, I agree. I, you know, every time you, you talked about that in kind of the second half of your story, as you unfolded it there, it's that sense of when you, it was almost, as I listened to you, almost seeing a, a a click in your head that said, and I know it didn't happen this easily, it can't, but you know, when you talked about doing things physically, windsurfing and exercising mm -hmm. and, you know, and learning to love life in a different way, especially loving your body or the movement of your body, um, that, mm -hmm. that those things to embrace them is such an act of self love and, and totally takes what happened to you and doesn't, it takes the power of that away from you. As mm -hmm. I imagine maybe speaking about it does as well. You know, speaking, I would say, has been the most single, powerful, empowering thing that I have ever done along my journey. I, I never thought I could ever share my story, let alone be on TV, radio, you know, speak about it, write a book. So it has been the most powerful thing to share my story because it was the shame that that silenced me and actually walking into my shame by speaking about it, cracked it. You know, every, all the shame has shattered. I know I have got nothing to be ashamed about. It is never the victim's fault. And I will continue to speak out until I think, okay, rape culture is finished now. So I may be an old <laughs> lady, but I will be determined to shatter those illusions that it is, you know, because you were sitting on a bed wearing pajamas and he came to your room late at night. No, that's not true. That's right. never true. It was the only person who is responsible for a rape or a sexual assault is the rapist. Yes, absolutely. No one else. So what gave you what gave you the the strength or pushed you to talk about this in an in a in a more public format the first time? How did you get there? Well, I yeah, I first shared my story online with the Forgiveness Project. I was approached by the founder and it went up on their website the 22nd of September 2014 and I just underestimated what it would do you know so many people got in contact with me first of all friends of mine and family because they didn't know or if they had known they didn't know it was near fate or you know I kept it well hidden and uh, then I started to get messages from people in the UK and then globally people have contacted me India America Australia and it resonated with all of them and I know my story is the story of many many people women and men so you know, Marina, who is our founder, often refers to us as story healers rather than storytellers. And the power of sharing our story, now I see it's not about me. It's what it can do for other people. And that's why I share my story. I think that is, that's beautiful in so many ways. I mean, you've, you found your healing through it, but you've helped 
so many other people as well. And and you're right, story healing. I love that concept versus storytelling. Yeah, it was really for me listening to somebody else share their story. And I thought, I could do this. And so I know now when I've spoken out, friends have now said to me, listen, I've written this blog because I read what you wrote. And I've spoken out now because I've heard you speak. And they will now go on to inspire other people as well. And, and so it ripples out. And we can see with the Me Too movement, how many women found their voice for the first time because there was safety in numbers. They weren't alone. They didn't feel isolated. They didn't feel the shame was just theirs. It was a collective power. It's a collective army of us growing. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that, you know, as well, that sense of, you know, I'd only told very few people that I knew about the attack that I had in college. And and not necessarily because I was ashamed of it, but because I think our culture so many times just says, well, you know, you you weren't hurt, you weren't put in the hospital, so, you know, get over it. Kind of the sense of just get over, you know, whatever it is. And yet it's always stuck in the back of my mind. I, you know, I have remembered it many times, but the sense of knowing that there's other people that give you you know, that opportunity to speak. And I remember, you know, when the the hashtag, and I know that, you know, when it has come out in the last year, this is not the first time that Me Too hashtag or, you know, comment has yeah, been put about. Been around 10 right. But it's now gaining all this traction. And I, I had written Me Too on my Facebook feed and, and somebody asked me, you know, what does this mean? I keep seeing it. So it was the first time I actually typed, it means you've been the victim of sexual assault, rape, or sexual discrimination or harassment or whatever. And and I wrote it and I typed it and I went, oh my gosh, what if people want to know what that means with me? And then I'm like, why am I even questioning it? Just put it out there. You know, th- why am I afraid still to even say that? You know, that shame on me for feeling shame on on acknowledging it and, and embracing it as a part of me. But the shame is, shame is so hard to walk through. It's so difficult to really be okay with shame. And I think also for a long time, I maybe didn't speak about it because I didn't acknowledge it, you know, from the trauma as well. You know, I kind of underplayed it. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't what I think it was and blah, blah. You know, so we turn it inwardly as well. Absolutely. In a way that helps us try and, I guess, figure it out or, or find a place that it's not yeah. so damaging to us. Yeah, we, we minimize it. Maybe that's part of our strategy to really learn to cope with it by minimizing it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a, a stretch in a different direction because mostly on my sure. podcast, I talk about uh, excellent examples of, you know, people and their organizations and their businesses that are doing great things to have great leadership experiences, to, you know, get, have a great sales experience or customer experience. And the reason that I wanted to have you on here is because your story is so compelling, not only for what happened to you, but how you came out the other side and this concept of, you know, I don't know what made them become a rapist that day. And and I know this is a long stretch, but it's so easy in our culture today, if you've had a bad experience or somebody's cut you off or, you know, somebody's cranky through the drive through or some, you know, you have these bad experiences. It's so easy to assume that other person is bad. Oh, they're a bad person. Yeah. Oh, they're horrible. They, you know, are a terrible server. They are a this or a that. And they're so, it's so easy, especially in this world where online you can write anything and you can write anything nasty to assume the worst about people. And one of the things I try and do through this podcast and also through my blog every day is to try and get people to look, at, you know, from a different perspective. That's another human being. So, you know, yeah. did that human being, not in the case of yours, because that's a, you know, a, a vastly different concept, 
but you don't know why they they were that way. But you know, on, on the other realm, you don't know. Did they have a bad day that day? Did their spouse, you know, wake up and say, "I don't want to be married to you anymore"? You know, did they have a fight with their child on the way to school? You know, there's so many things that we don't understand, and yet we make snap judgments. And for you to have found that place for you at such an extreme, you know, saying, "I don't know what made them rapists," and I don't believe they were born that way. Your level of forgiveness is on such a level that I thought that message is important to hear. So that maybe we could look at our daily grind a little bit and maybe have a little bit more patience for that other human being that maybe cut you off in line or, you know, on the freeway today and really have a sense of who is that other human being. Absolutely. Well, for me, forgiveness is really about understanding. I saw that in their dehumanizing of me, they were really dehumanizing themselves, that they were able to do whatever they did to me because they weren't connected into their goodness, their source, their their very being. And that's when I started to feel compassion for them. I thought, gosh, to live like that, so disconnected and so full of rage and violence must be far harder for them than it is for me. And and I think Mm -hmm. forgiveness is really about understanding that, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and lots of the stories on the website of the forgiveness project are from victims like myself but also perpetrators of violence or of crimes and how they've turned their life around i mean i I wouldn't give up on someone just because they've made one mistake in their life so we have a few stories of men that were former so they've been former white supremacists and now they've turned it around and they're working uh, with charities called, uh, let me think of some like Life After Hate. So they go into schools and they educate children on respect and racism and supporting environments. And so they do amazing work now. And they wouldn't have been able to do that work if they weren't in that hate-filled group many, many years ago. That's very compelling. And that and that isn't important. That is a great reminder is our past doesn't always dictate our future. Absolutely. But how many times do we determine somebody's future by their past? So, or we write someone off because of it, absolutely. So many times. I just refused you know, to be defined by what had happened to me, but I can't be so ignorant to see that it has shaped my life as well. You know, I often wonder, what would I be doing if this had, hadn't, hadn't happened to me? But uh, well, and then, and that's yeah, a- it definitely does shape your life. I think that's an important question, and and I I don't know how to ask this the right. I don't know if there's a right way, um, or you know, a way that really uh, gets to the heart of you know, kind of what's bubbling in my brain. But you know, I always ask people, and it's always a business related you know question. But if you knew, you know, if you could talk to your younger self, you know, what advice would you give to that person? And knowing, you know, obviously you'd never want to experience the trauma and you know the horror of what you had, but you know. What would you want the younger person to know prior to this rape? And also, what things have you learned in your life now that you know you only could have learned because of that horrific experience? Well, it may come across as a very strange answer, but I actually wouldn't stop myself from experiencing what I have experienced. You know, I would never wish it on anyone else to experience what I experienced, but it it opened me up. It woke me up to life and it made me, I think I really have experienced post-traumatic growth. You know, it really showed me that life is for living. I'm so grateful that I wasn't killed. So many women are raped and then killed. I was, they came so close to killing me about three times they made attempts and somehow I was protected. So I wouldn't wish it on anyone else, but I wouldn't take it away either. And the advice I would tell my younger self is that really to uh, 
stop giving yourself a hard time for so many years. It was never, ever, ever your fault. And to have told someone far earlier on. Yeah. post Those those are really the things I would have said. Post-traumatic growth, that is... That's so, that has just so much depth to the thought process of embracing the things that we've learned the hard way in our life and making yeah. sure we, we use it for good in our future. Yeah, I had a very good teacher or two teachers in my parents. My father, I don't know if I say this on, on the video or not, he was a Holocaust survivor. So it wasn't really by what he said. His parents and his brothers and sisters, his younger brother, Mordechai, was only six. They were all gassed in Auschwitz. So all his family was murdered. His sister survived, but she had serious mental health issues. But he loved life. He mucked about. He was playful. He was childlike. He met my mum. He had five of us. If you met him, you'd never have known his past. So not by what he said, but how he lived his life. I knew that we are able to get past anything that happens to us in life. And my mum as well, she had her, her neck broken in an operation and was bedridden for a few years. And she fought back. She realised there was five of us at home and nurses and care assistants were bringing us up. And she nursed herself back to health when they said she would never walk again. You know, and I just thought, gosh, she's resilient as well. So I come from good survivor stock, I think. <laughs> That's, that is amazing. And it's about the choice. It's about the choice to find joy where you can. And it's interesting because, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I think about it so many times. I, I now know that when I was uh, younger, I suffered from depression, but depression didn't really have a name then. Um, yeah. You know, it was before Prozac. It was before it was something that you could talk about. And I remember there were times, now I look back and I see that there were times that I was depressed. And my mother would say, just be happy. Why can't you just be happy? And it's nothing to knock her on this because we've had many conversations in the decades since. And I'm like, mom, you can't just decide to be happy. But I later in life, I think I learned, but you can choose what to embrace and you can find ways to be happy, but you, choosing to be happy isn't slapping a smile on your face for the world to think you're okay. Yeah. You know, I had to really work the trauma out of my body. I haven't got to this place overnight. It's been a long, long process, as you know, of talking therapies and many body therapies. But after a while... Once the trauma had left my system, I cleaned it up. I saw that I had a choice and I saw it was about where I put my attention. Yes, I could still put my attention into poor me, why me, why did this happen? Or I could decide, you know what, they didn't kill me. I am still alive. I've got an amazing, beautiful husband and three gorgeous girls. I love my life. I'm not my body. I'm not what they did to me. I'm, I'm so much more than one night. And I just thought, you know, stuff them. I'm just going to live my life as best as I can. I love it. I'm so, I'm just so impressed by you, but I, even more than being able to talk to you today and, and have you share your story with me and my listeners is this sense and this, this excitement I get about how many people you must reach and touch that have had extremely traumatic experiences that, that find hope in what you're saying and find hope in seeing, you know, how you've come past this and start to find that path for themselves if they haven't already. And I, I just think, you know, bless you for making that impact on the world. And thankfully, it also had a huge benefit for you to, you know, to continue to move through your journey. Yeah, well, that, my intention on sharing my story was to offer hope. And, you know, this is the way that I have done it. And, and I'm not saying in order to heal, everybody has to forgive. This was just the way that I chose to do it. You can absolutely heal without forgiveness. There's many, many ways 
on a journey of healing. But for me, it, as we mentioned before, it was self-forgiveness. It was about self-love. And it was just a way for me to let go, let go of all that anger and hate and revenge, and which was taking up too much space in my body. And now everything's shifted. It's much lighter the way that I am. But everyone will find their own way. But there is a way there. And for people who want to know more, I'm going to have all your information on the show notes, but it's madelineblack.co.uk. And your first name is spelled M-A-D-E-L-E-I-N-E, just so everybody knows. It's a little yes. bit different. The French way. The French way. I screwed <laughs> yeah. it up writing it several yeah. times. So, uh, yes. okay. <laughs> and your book is called Unbroken? It is. And you can get it on Amazon. Very good. And you can, I can see you can order it online. And uh, if you get on uh, your website, you can also get the link to your YouTube. I think it's on there. Is, is the link to your YouTube video on there? It is, yes. It should be. I've got a media page. And so you can listen to a few of my interviews that I've put, I've put up. Very good. Um, so what, you know, as we you know, begin to wrap here, what, what do you think is most important for you know, my listeners to know and that you know, it's the most important message that you like to leave people with? I would just like to say to your listeners, whatever age you are now, you know, it's never, ever, ever too late to find your voice and to get help. You know, I was so fortunate. I've been interviewed by um, Sir Trevor MacDonald, who's an amazing presenter. But it was what took place afterwards, which really amazed me. A friend's mother had been listening who was 81. And to cut a very long story short, she ended at 64 years of silence when she told her daughter that she too had been raped. And it was only in listening to me that it resonated with her. And I just think, gosh, how many women or men could go to their grave with this, what they feel is a dirty, shameful secret and never, ever find their voice. And my friend has told me now what has opened up between them is just gold. It's just a space now that they never, ever had before in their life together. And to me, every time I speak, I just think of that one woman. Oh, and I love the concept of, you know, space between them, that there was a door that was closed that maybe her daughter didn't even know, but always felt that there was a little something missing. And mom always knew there was a piece she never shared. When you open those doors together, you can find new space together. That's beautiful. I thank you so very much for being a part of this. I know it's, uh, and especially when you said, I think you said this is the third uh, episode or third uh, taping that you're doing today of different interviews. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure to speak to you, Michael. It has for me as well. I, I am I'm so glad that I had you on and I know my listeners will gain from it as well. So I would like to uh, send you off with a very big thank you. And, um, and next time you're uh, in the US speaking, I will hope to uh, find you myself if you get over this way across the pond. But uh, if not, I will definitely send my listeners your way and uh, be ordering a copy of your book as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Shock Your Potential. Learn more today about my book, Tell Me More, and about me at shockyourpotential.com and shockyourpotentialpodcast.com. Make it a great day.